Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and my guest today is in many respects our arch enemy because along with Rory Stewart, Alistair Campbell is permanently at the top of the podcast charts. They show the rest is politics is up there like some immovable political Brian Adams. It's a new lease of life for the man who was Tony Blair's combative communications director between 94 and 2003. He subsequently became a leading light in the People's Vote campaign to stop Brexit and then editor-at-large of the New European newspaper. He has a new book coming out called But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. Uh, Alistair Campbell, this won't be the first bunker you've been in, but welcome. It is a bunker as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. It's our protection from the outside world. So it's election day. Yep. Labour have a 14 to 18% lead in the national polls and Burnley have just been promoted. Are you feeling optimistic at the moment? Well, promotion is secured uh, and that's done. As you say, we're, we're meeting on the morning of the local elections. I never, ever, ever get excited about elections in advance. I try and, I try and ignore the hype. Don't listen to all the expectation management. And I, look, I think it is an important election. It's going to be interesting. I hate the way with these local elections, though, they immediately get sort of just become, they just get seen as a sort of gigantic opinion poll when actually people are people are voting in all sorts of different ways for different reasons. And many people aren't voting at all. I was well, all geared up. I was all geared up to vote this morning and then realised it's not happening in, in there where I am in North London. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, I have my ID card and everything. I was oh. all excited. Well, I tell you what, you know this thing about the Oyster card. I've got an over sixties Oyster card. I mean, just look at the state of that. It's uh, it's it could be anybody. That's you just, can't, you can't. It's, well, it's nobody. My face is literally not there anymore. You look like the Chirin Shroud. So what can I do with that? I mean, you can vote. Exactly, but if you're if you're a young person with an Oyster card with a clear picture, you can't. Could a young person vote with that old person's card because it's got no picture on it? Who even knows? Well, exactly, but it is my Oyster card. There you go. So when it says under law, you can vote with your over-60s Oyster card, that is my over-60s Oyster card. Now, hearing the title of the book, some people might say, who's this guy to tell us how to fix politics? Because in many senses, it was his generation that kind of broke it or led to it breaking. We're going to get into that later. But first, we want to talk about your diagnosis and the solutions, right? So you go into in detail into the failings of modern politics, from populism to polarisation, nationalism, the spread of post-truth and cynicism. I want to ask you, why is it that this generation of older voters, the kind of 90s, 2000s generation that uniquely lost its grip on liberal democracy? How come we were the ones that opened that Pandora's box? Well, I kind of do go into that, and I think you mentioned some of the, the factors. I think that populism is what is the key. Mm. I think populism, and, and I think when populism sort of came along, as I see it as a virus, when it first came along, I think people thought it was about politicians trying to be popular. Well, why wouldn't politicians try to be popular? Populism isn't about being popular. It's about separating, deliberately separating the people and an elite. And the elite can be anybody, but it can't be the populist. Hmm. So Donald Trump, you don't get much more elitist than when your dad's a billionaire and he's giving you loads of money. Boris Johnson, Eaton, Oxbridge, Telegraph, Spectator. He, he sort of is a living embodiment of the elite, right? Um, but they, Nigel Farage, privately educated city trader, but they, they identify themselves very, very strongly as for the people against the elite. It's a con trick, mm. but it's very, very effective at a time when people feel that politics isn't working for them. I say in the book that I think the really big tipping point on it was probably the global financial crisis, where people looked at what was happening. They saw the people who, quote, caused it getting away with it. They, the people, paid a price. And then the 
the Brexit people and the Farages and the Johnsons and the Trumps and the Putins and the Modis and the Erdogans and all these guys, they come in and exploit that. And the other thing that I think has happened is that, you know, you can have whatever criticism you want of Tony Blair's government or of any government that went before it. But in my lifetime, in your lifetime, most politicians, whether we like them or we don't like them, have genuinely been trying to wrestle with problems in their intray. What the populist does is try to exploit those problems. We see it now with Braverman on migration. Does Braverman really want to sort out the problem of small boats? No, she wants to, she wants to exploit it. Does she really think that the Rwanda policy is the thing that's going to fix this problem? No, it's a way of exploiting it politically. And so that's what I talk about the virus. And it is, I think we have to, I think we have to understand that unless we, unless we grip it, by understanding that that is what politics has become, then it's going to take a very, very long time to undo the damage. Yeah. But I, I want to ask you, sort of go back to that, like, why now? This is not the first time that people have been offered, you know, elites of scapegoats. It's not okay. the first time there have been disasters. Is it the technology that enables this I think, this I think that's a lot to do with it. I think lots of things. I think the fact that we're mobile, the fact that we don't necessarily follow the politics of our parents in a way that maybe your generation, our generation did. Also, I think what technology has done, and it's not just technology, it's been the kind of, it's been the explosion of things that we can care about. Mm. You know, there is so much that we can get literally just by having a telephone or a laptop, you can get access to so many things that you can care about, serious and trivial. And the oxygen that, that politics used to take in the body politic has got thinner and thinner and thinner. The gene pool of politics has mm. got thinner and thinner and thinner. I think that a lot of that is down to do with the way that the media debates politics and covers politics. I go to, I, you know, I did one the other day, the first event I did with the book, with all these, you know, very clever professional people in the audience all complaining about, you know, quality of politicians has gone down, which is something I say as well. But then I said to them, okay, Hands up, in this room, anybody who's ever thought of going into politics. One hand went up. I asked the guy why he didn't, and he said, I just I, I value my life too much. Mm. Now, so there's a room of publicly interested, publicly committed, would see themselves as wanting to serve the common good, and lots of them would do it. There might be teachers, there might be doctors, there might be lawyers, there might be whatever. But they can't see that politics is for them. So what I'm, partly what I'm trying to do with the book is not varnish it. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying everybody's going to love you because they're not. But I am saying two things. One, unless people like you, not pointing at you here, but the person who's the mm -hmm. cynic, the person who says politics doesn't make a difference, etc. Unless you get involved, and unless at least some of you get involved to the extent of going in, getting your head right above the parapet and saying, I'm going to change this and I'm going to stand for power, then the gene pool is going to get narrower and thinner and we're just going to go around in a never-ending dreadful loop. Well, it, I mean, the book is, is in many respects a plea, particularly to young people, to get involved. Uh, and you do at the end give you top 10 reasons why you should become involved in politics. And one of them is it's fun. But a lot of people will look at it and go, it doesn't look like fun. It looks like a bin fire of monsters. I haven't got the book in front of me, but doesn't it say it can be fun? It can, hang on a minute. I, mean, I think it, it says it can it be fun. It can be fun. I, I mean, <laughs> like I say, I don't varnish it. It can be. Listen, politics is, it, it can be a nightmare. And, you know, as you know, what does it say? Clarification, point four, sometimes it is even good fun. So there you go, that, there yes. you go, there you go. So we're both right. You know, I did say <laughs> it's fun, but I did qualify it. Yeah. Um, no, look, look it, the most important thing 
is that it is the means, or it is one of the main means by which you can actually make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. That may sound powerless, but it's true. I quote Julia Gillard, the former Australian Prime Minister in there, and I said to her, if you've got a young woman, particularly a young woman, because women get so much abuse in politics, wants to put their head above the parapet. If you've got a young woman in front of you saying, look, I really care about the world, I really want to make a difference, I really want to get involved, but I just can't face the idea of all the misogyny and the abuse and all yeah. the stuff you've had to deal with. And Julia said that what she would say to that person, to that young woman, is, well, that's fine, but imagine what it's like to lift a million children out of poverty. Imagine what it's like to be able to get more money into the things that you believe in. You can do that in politics. So, And there's somebody like Judy Gillard. So she's been through all that. She's been prime minister. She's now doing all sorts of things in academia and outside, in my view. And where I suspect when she looks back on that career, mm. that's the stuff she remembers. Not some, some twat in his underpants and his mum's sofa tweeting abuse at you five, every five minutes of the day. So I'm trying to say to people, I'm not pretending it isn't horrible for a lot of people or that it isn't incredibly hard work, which I think it should be. I think it should be hard to kind of, you know, change the government. It should be hard to change the law. Mm. But at the same time, you know, I, I was at an event recently where we got all the, you know, it was just a kind of nice dinner, really, but it was all the kind of original team, Tony Blair team. And... You know, it was just really, really nice to sit around with people that you'd worked with, that you were close to, that you'd had ups and downs, but actually you were still a very, very strong band of people together. And that is like, you know, it, it reminded me a little bit, I'm obsessed with sports, you know, it reminded me a little bit of great sports teams that go through a lot together. And at the end of it, you look back and you don't necessarily think of all the bad times. You think, well, we actually got a lot done. Yeah. In many respects, it's a manual of how to do it as well you know, how to organise, how to maintain their campaigning mindset, stuff like that. But what would you say to somebody who argues that you could organise and campaign in that kind of bottom-up, grassroots way in the 90s and the 2000s, but the world is different now. We're up against targeted political advertising that can't be policed by anybody because you can't even see where it's going. Yeah. We're up against international platforms that these things take place on international platforms yeah. that are not under democratic control. They're resourced by vast resources of yeah. right-wing money, international, again, untraceable. I'm not saying you can't fight them, but how do you do it differently when this is taking place in a completely different arena from the one that you've been talking about? Well, you've answered your own question. How do you do it differently? You, clearly, you have to do it differently. Mm. But some things I don't think have changed. I still think that it is possible to... This may be romantic, it may be naive, but I think, actually, over time, the better argument will win. Now... In my view, and I know in your view, that did not happen in the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. Okay, the the, the 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 wrong arguments, and I'm not I'm trying to be balanced here, but anybody I think who looks at it objectively now would say the wrong arguments won, and they were won in the wrong way. And I go into that in some detail in the book about how and why that happened. But and what's now happening is that the political class has said, "Oh, it's such a bloody nightmare. Let's just move on. Let's forget about it. What have you?" That's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. That's not going to go away. So that argument will come back. And those who have the better arguments over time, I still believe, can win. Now, is it harder with, this, with the changes that you're talking about? Definitely. Absolutely. You look at the, the elections in America now. Mm. You know, there's Joe Biden running for re-election. And his team are open about the fact they're going to need a billion dollars, a billion dollars mm. to fight an election campaign. And part of what they're fighting is the bad that you're talking about. But part of what they're fighting is they're trying to fight the bad that is coming from elsewhere. So you do have to do it differently. 
But, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. And it doesn't mean that certain fundamentals do not change. So, for example, I would argue, I think, I can't remember if I quote Wenger in the book, but I know this is something I've quoted often when I'm out talking about this. Arsene Wenger once said that, I did an interview with him for a previous thing, and he said, the modern, in, the, in the modern world, the pressures are all to be tactical. The response should be to be more strategic. I still think strategy is, is at the heart of this. And too many organizations, campaigns, parties, they become much, much too tactical. Mm. Um, I'd say that definitely of the government. I'd say it of Labour. I'd say it of the Lib Dems. I'd say it of all of them. And that's because I think they're misunderstanding the changes that you were talking about. And I don't underestimate how difficult they are. I, I accept that. But I still think you can use some of the old-fashioned principles of campaigning to defeat them. You do actually mention the Leave campaign in the book as an example of how to campaign. They mm. were relentless. They were focused. They had an objective. They had a strategy. And they had tactics. And, now, they, were, and, they, and they were absolutely f obsessed about winning. Yeah. Yeah. Which then raises the question... What went wrong with the People's Vote campaign that we were involved in? Well, so much energy, thought, support went into it. Presumably should have been following exactly the, the kind of principles you're talking about in the book. Where did we go wrong? I think it followed some of the principles, but I think, I think that it is different when you are willing, as Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson, etc. were, literally to say anything, true or false. Now, you know, you, people can say what they like about Iraq and me and spin and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I've always been clear about in campaigns, and this is a big change in recent years under this lot, I'm afraid, is that you get, if you, the way I was brought up, both as a journalist and in campaigns, is if you, if you lie, you're done for, okay? Oh. So I would argue on the People's Vote campaign and indeed on Cameron's campaign, the, the, the Remain campaign in 2016, there was tough campaigning, but there was no lying. Whereas what we saw with the Leave campaign, and we've seen plenty of time since, by the way, I mean, I say in the book, how incredible is it that back in 2016, it was absolutely a red line for all sides that we would not leave the single market in the customs union. Mm -hmm. And now, it having been won in the way that it's won, the damage having been done, is now a red line for both the main parties that we can't even think about going back in the single market and the customs union. So I think that the, I thought that there was one point at which I thought the People's Vote campaign was going to win. And that was when the momentum was really, really growing, both in Parliament and the public. And I think that, you know, you talk about having objective strategy. Our strategy was to get the public, to pressure MPs, to change. And we went from a handful at the start to 300 MPs who were basically up for it. And then this stuff, this stuff happens. The Tories were desperate for a general election, desperate to make about Brexit. And I regret to say the Liberal Democrats, then the SNP, and then I think Labour because they had no choice. Because, you know, how can you possibly say you don't want a general election? Yeah. Uh, so, but I think the SNP and the Lib Dems jumped into a trap. Do you remember that time when the Lib Dems got this absurd view that they were going to win an election, that Joe Swinson was heading to mm. number 10 and et cetera. So, and then I go through the book. There were lots of other mistakes that we made. Um, I think we became part of the polarization problem. Mm. Uh, you, you're, you mentioned the whole thing about social media technology. You know, I, I, I say in the book, I discovered after the event that we were putting filters on ads that they weren't going to anybody who, quote, liked Piers Morgan. Uh, They're or, exactly the people you do want to go to, exactly. aren't they? Um, we were firing up our people, 
Mm. And we were getting, you know, a million people out onto the streets. Three of the biggest four marches yeah. in recent times were the People's Vote marches. And I think another of the reasons for me writing the book at this time is I, I, I sometimes sort of, I say, where's all that energy gone? Mm. Where has it gone? Because those people are still there, but where's their political energy gone? And so it's really trying to to mobilize people to understand that. So that was an example. Yes, we failed. Absolutely, we failed. We didn't win it. But there's lots to look at in that campaign mm. that, that was successful in terms of how we were campaigning. It's just that when it came to the crunch, the leadership, both political leadership in the parties and also the leadership of the campaign itself, um, as I go through in the book, it, it sort of imploded. You're perilously close to saying we won the argument here, Alistair. No, I'm not saying that because, <laughs> I, I look, David Cameron won the argument in 2016. Mm. I'm not saying – I think we did win the argument in terms of was it, was it a strong argument that something so significant, something on which there was so much division, was it really that anti-democratic to say, right, okay, we've had the vote in principle in 2016, now there should be a vote on the final deal. I still think that was the right thing to do for mm -hmm. the country. But we lost the vote, and that is as a, the reason why I try to be analytical as opposed to just kind of tribal. But that's why I do say, whether we like it or not, the messaging of the Leave campaign in 2016 was faultless against messaging from the Remain campaign that was riddled with faults. Hmm. And also, I do think, funnily enough, on the podcast this morning, we had a question about Brexit. We get them most weeks. And I, I made the point, I've made it a million times before. Ultimately, I don't think David Cameron had to have that referendum. He had it for party political reasons, internal reasons, not for the national interest. And that's why we are where we are. Um, but, and George Osborne, we've just interviewed Osborne for the podcast, and, and look, he desperately tried to persuade Cameron not to do it because he could see where it was heading. Mm. Referendums are so... People think it's the easiest thing in the world to say, oh, let the people decide. Well, fine, but, you know, we are a parliamentary democracy, I don't often say the words, I agreed with Margaret Thatcher when she said, but I agreed with Margaret Thatcher when she said, in fact, she was quoting Attlee, mm. um, but referendums are for demagogues and dictators, and mm. they should only be used when there is a fundamentally divisive issue over which the politicians are agreed and the public are not. Yeah. And this was another way around. It was the, the, this was a referendum used to try to pretend there was agreement inside one party. You also look a lot at leadership in the book, and obviously you've got no time at all for Boris Johnson, but setting aside all the, the dishonesty and the kind of shame of it all, why was he a bad leader in the technical sense? Oh, I don't think you can be a leader without some sort of moral compass. Mm -hmm. You've got to know what you stand for. Um, he was chaotic. He didn't manage people. He didn't really care about the situations. I mean, you know, Dominic Cummings may be viewed as an unreliable witness, but when you hear, not just from him, but from other people that have worked with Johnson, the guy shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a serious job. He's not a serious person. Well, the thing that stood out to me was you set out how he repeatedly issued contradictory instructions and would throw anybody under the bus. Yeah. And we've seen this play out. Literally anybody who ever goes near Boris Johnson is eventually debased and destroyed by it. Happened to Allegra Stratton. Looks like it's happening to Simon Case. You know, Richard, it's Richard Sharp. Yeah, it is a contaminant. And that goes back to his lack of leadership, which is he just he would not give clear instructions and would not stand up for those instructions when they were executed. 
No, he, look, he, he's got a... He became... We're back to the point you made earlier about the, you know, why now, why the change. I think in a previous era, Johnson would have been laughed out of court. Mm. I wonder whether we've become, a, we've become a less serious country. I think partly because of the media that we do consume. I think actually this sort of, you know, the rise of the podcast within our debate is quite an interesting development because I think podcasts in the main, not all of them, but even the ones that are about comedy tend to be quite serious. Mm. And I think that the way that our media covers politics, very thin, very superficial, very trivial a lot of the time. Um, no, I, I listen, I completely agree with you. I, th I think Johnson, the fact that... Here's a real symbol of things. So when he was on the, on the Times as a journalist, he got sacked for making up a story. When it came to standing to be Prime Minister, the Times backed him. Mm. The have I got news for you thing. I've got, I've got no problem. I appear on sort of comedy shows. and I've got no problem with politicians trying to quote, trying to show a different side to themselves. But Johnson, like Trump, actually never really moved beyond the entertainer. Yeah, they the, are that character. The performer. Um, and too many people fell for it. Mm. And, of course, then the other thing, when it came to the referendum, Cameron v. Johnson, Cameron was so convinced he was going to win that he put out this ridiculous instruction, no blue-on-blue blue attacks. And then when it came to the general election, Johnson against Corbyn, I'm afraid, I know we're in his constituency and he lives not far from here, but I was always of the view that, this country was never going to elect Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. Mm. And people go on about Boris Johnson's fantastic, you know, they call it a landslide. I mean, he got a big, reasonably sized majority, okay. But I think a lot of that was down to fatigue over Brexit. Johnson's kind of sense of being positive about the future. But I think the big factor was, was people not wanting Jeremy, I'm afraid. You yourself were a feared and aggressive communications director. You were better known than some ministers. Jeremy Vine wrote in 2012 that in a good mood, Alistair Campbell was fun. In a bad mood, he was Ivan the Terrible, Freddy Krueger and Chopper Harris all rolled into one. Mm. Um, from writing the book, particularly writing about emotional intelligence and understanding others, while you were writing it, do you look back and think, actually, I could have been better at some of that stuff when I was working in New Labour? So I, I watched the interview with you and Jon Snow from 2003 mm. and the Alistair Campbell there. I wouldn't want to be in a room this size with that Alistair Campbell. That was quite a rare one, though. I mean, I've just done a, an interview with John for his podcast, and um, and we talked about about that. I, I was very, very angry that day. Um, I actually, though, I, I looked back on it because I was writing about it in the book. I stand by literally every syllable of every word. Mm -hmm. Tonally, I went over the top. <laughs> okay, I accept that. But sometimes you have to. I don't buy this kind of caricature mythology about, you know, the aggression and what have you. I was aggressive at times, and I was... I, w I wanted the media to understand that they, having been used to kicking the slats out of Labour and thinking that was no big deal, it wasn't going to happen. Hmm. That if they stepped over a line that I or we deemed to be beyond reasonable, beyond fair, I was going to call them out. Hmm. Um, I also felt that they they believed because of the way that Mrs. Thatcher had kind of got them under her thumb, and she did it by giving peerages to owners, knighthoods to editors, and the fact of the political bias that was in the media anyway, which this still exists. It's still, we've still got a very right-wing media. Yeah. But the most important thing was actually that we were setting the agenda through the strategy we were developing and through the policies we were putting forward. That's how we did it. The media love to think it's about them. 
and it's not. And and the, so I was aggressive. Look, sometimes you talk about emotional intelligence. I think I am quite emotionally intelligent. I did go over the top sometimes. I accept mm. that. Um, but at the same time, what I'll never do is buy this idea that it was kind of six to one, six half a dozen the other. The British media is very, very difficult to deal with, and the political media in particular. And unless you are robust, thick-skinned, tough, able to call them out and not scared of them, you're not going to beat them. I did say at the top of the show that some people will say, who is this guy with his records to tell us how to fix politics? And uh, there's a, they'd say a large part of the decline in trust comes from breaches in trust that did happen under the Blair government, particularly the dodgy dossier, allegations that your operation sexed up evidence of weapons of mass destruction. Now, the Hutton report found that the dossier had not been sexed up, but that it had perhaps been subconsciously influenced by the government. I was one of those people who believed the evidence. I believed what I was told. I believed, mm. you know, and, and I supported the war and subsequently I had to admit that actually that wasn't the situation. And you, as you've just said, you stand by every word in that, in that interview. How do you feel about that episode now? Do you accept that perhaps part of the decline in trust in politics is from that episode where people felt that they had been sold something that wasn't true? I accept that part of it is that, yeah. Um, but I also think it's wrong and unfair because that break, that particular, I said earlier that, you know, when, when I was doing the job for Tony Blair, I was always mindful of the fact that any power that I had was not my power, it was his. I was only there because he'd asked me to do a job for him. I was his spokesperson. I was his director of strategy. It wasn't my director of strategy and communications. Yeah. That's, what's, that's what separates me from Cummings. Yeah. The hand of the king in Game of Thrones. Well, I don't know what you call it, but Cumming, Cummings saw himself as the person in charge and Johnson yeah. was his vassal. Yeah, he thought he was Rasputin. Yeah, right. Okay, well, you, uh, I'm loving all your illusions, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not diving into them. Um, whereas I was working for Tony, never, I never, and one of the principles I understood, I mentioned this earlier, when Tony was at the dispatch box in the House of Commons, he was very conscious of the fact that if what he said was untrue, he would be expected to resign. Now, Johnson has trashed this whole mm. principle, but that was a principle. I believe that as well for my job. And so you say, OK, the Hutton Inquiry didn't accuse you of da 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 That, to me, is the most important fact, because that's what we were accused of. We weren't just accused of, quote, sexing up. That can mean anything you want it to mean. Yeah. I was, we, and in particular I, was accused of falsifying intelligence against the wishes of the intelligence agencies to put something into a, parla a document being presented to Parliament that I knew to be untrue. Now, not a single word of that is true. Mm. So that's why I say I'm never going to accept it's half, six to one, half a dozen the other. Do I wish that episode had never happened? Of course I do. But the reason that it did was not because we were telling a lie. It was not because we were trying to persuade the public to support something that we knew not to be true. It was that Tony Blair really believe that policy had to be pursued in the way that it was. We were trying to share the intelligence that he saw with the public in a way that the intelligence agencies were broadly okay with. And the rest of it, I'm afraid, is just part of the mythology. Mm -hmm. So no, and you know, it wasn't just the Hutton inquiry. I think I've been in front of six inquiries now. Now, there are some people who will never ever accept that what we say on this is true. But there's nothing I can do about that. Mm. All I can do is keep answering your questions in the same way as I'll answer anybody's questions about this. But I, it's, it's always very frustrating when you, as the individual about whom this story became, you know 
I know what happened, okay? Mm. And I know that the central allegations made against us, which led to all the inquiries and everything else, are unfounded. I know that 100%. So, and so, and I think when you're into official reports talking about subconscious influence and all that sort of stuff, I get what I get where they're coming from, but I think basically it's just a it's a line in a report because they didn't actually find the smoking gun that the media kept kept saying there was. Mm. How do you deal with the the notion that for a sizable minority of people who make our politics the way it is at the moment, the chaotic politics that gives prominence to anger and confrontation mm. and you know dishonesty and vindictiveness, it might do all those things, but at least it's their anger, their confrontation. And that maybe they like it that way, that maybe for a, a sizable minority mm. of people across the West, not just in Britain, that this actually is better politics, where they get to shout, scream, and in a possibly extremely negative way, they do get to get their voice heard. How, yeah. do, you, how do you deal with that? I, th- I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I have a problem when that becomes the dominant force that is driving the politicians in power to make very bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Look, you've always had, I mean, you know, Abraham Lincoln, who's now seen as sort of a saint, right? Go and look at some of the treatment he got from the public, from the media, traveling around the country. You know, he got called every single name under the sun. And it doesn't matter. I think, uh, uh, by the way, I, I actually am on the side of these people who are objecting to, rebelling against these curbs on protest now. Mm. Because there's all you've got to be able to protest, you've got to be able to shout, you've got to be able to scream abuse at people. Okay, my point is there's always been a place for that, and it has it. It can have its influence in the debate, but when you get to that parliament, that is where you're electing your representatives to take decisions on the behalf of the whole country, that should not be the the kind of politics that's driving them day in, mm. day out. And I worry that with populism, with Brexit, with people like Johnson, Braverman as Home Secretary, and people go on about Sunak being the grown-up in the room. Well, you know, he's put her there for a reason. Yeah. And while while people like that are in our politics, and as I said earlier, exploiting problems rather than solving problems, our policy is not going to improve. Now, by the way, on the sort of the polarisation, the aggression, all that, I do say in the book, I've thought a lot about this, particularly since doing the podcast, we have this motto, Disagree Agreeably. You know, I'm not, I'm not averse to disagreeing disagreeably mm-hmm. when I have to. And I try now, because pod- I've, le- I've realised with the podcast, I think one of the reasons we get the sort of listenership that we do is because pe- some people, not everybody, you're right, but a lot of people really are fed up with all the shouting, really are fed up with all the toxicity and the lies. and the- mm. So they're wanting something different. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't negate the fact that you will always have and you always should have people who want to go out and, you know... Shout and scream. In the section of the book about developing a campaigning mindset, Mm. you talk about uh, the illnesses that were brought on to yourself Mm. by your obsessiveness of Mm. your kind of total engagement in politics. Depression, ulcerative colitis, asthma, recurring nasal polyps, chest infections. You've also, in your time, you've been commendably open about your own mental health, about your alcoholism in the past. Did obsessive politicking maybe take the place of the release of drinking for you? Is that, that you know, the way that sometimes people stop drinking or they stop taking drugs and they throw themselves into yoga or they throw themselves into other obsessions? Did that take the place of that for you? Possibly. I mean, I remember once... Um 
<laughs> when we were talking to Vladimir Putin, as it were, uh, I can remember once we were at this banquet and in in uh, Moscow, and they kept with every course they kept bringing bringing a different yeah a different vodka, and of course mine were just lining up, and I was leaving them. There was no plant or tree near me that I could sort of you know <laughs> pour them into. So they're all knocking them back and what have you. Uh, and I've got about, by the end of the evening, I've got about these seven, eight glasses just here, all with a little drop of vodka in them. And Putin's sitting, there's Putin, there's Tony, and I'm just sort of a yard away. And um, and I keep, every every time I keep seeing Putin sort of look at this growing line of vodka, and Tony Lotus is looking at it, he says, oh, don't worry about him, he's a thingaholic. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was quite a good observation. What he meant by that was that, I'm, I have got an addictive personality, and and I do think actually I don't know whether it, I mean I guess it's the old dry drunk thing, you know. Do I throw myself into something that that does sometimes endanger my health? There's no doubt about that. That I do, and not you know, and I still do it. I still do it. Like you know, even something like the podcast. I mean, once I realised it was doing quite well, I became absolutely obsessed with getting it to number one. <laughs> and you know, it's not good for you, but it. It's that's something that drives me. I'm very, very competitive. I'm very driven. If I care about something, I'm very driven. So yeah, I think the and, and there's no doubt. I mean, since I left number ten, here's the thing: the ulcerative colitis. When I when I was first diagnosed with it, I was told it was incurable, and it would eventually develop into Crohn's disease. So I checked out Crohn's disease. I thought, God, I really don't want that. I took these drugs for years and years, and then I was I, I was having annual checkups. And about three years after I left, a bit more than that, maybe after I left number 10, I went for my annual checkup and it had gone. And the guy was like, oh, do you mind if we do a bit of a project on you? Because this doesn't normally happen. That must have been stress related. Yeah. I'd have thought. So we have a book here that's saying, get into politics. You can make a difference. But you might go give, mad. It will give him all sorts of colitis, <laughs> asthma, recurring nasal polyps and chest infections. Just to, to close <laughs> off, what I mean, this is in many respects addressed to young people. Yeah. Far younger than me. What are the things that give you hope about the next? Because it feels like there's a bit of a kind of change in the guard in politics now. We're seeing the kind of fly-blown characters of the 2000s and the 20-teens just fading away. What gives you hope for the next phase of politics? Well, I talk a lot in the book about role models. Um, I talk a lot about including individual issue campaigners that won't necessarily ever go into politics, but I see them as political figures. People like Gina Martin, who did the upskirting, yeah. campaign um the, the campaign that my daughter was involved in, in period on period poverty um i look at I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan tony blair always rolls his eyebrows his eyes at me when i say this but i'm a massive fan of greta thunberg i think she's <laughs> she's my she's my kind of go-to person when people say oh well, young people can't make a difference no young person on their own can make a difference I can't believe tony's rolling his eyes at greta thunberg no, it's not he's rolling he's, ro he's rolling his eyes at me ah, right. being okay. a bit of a fan of Greta Thunberg. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's kind of, you know. Um, so, so uh, and then I think in, in politics itself, what gives me hope is partly this, it's the flip coin of what gives me despair. It is that there are enough people out there. The reason that the book, I wrote the book, and the reason I've given it the title I've given it is because that's what people say to me all the time. Mm. You know, when I'm out, just out walking the dog or just on the train or whatever, so many young people will say, I listen to your podcast, I, I read your thing, I read this book you wrote, I agree with what you said on telly, da, da. but what can I do? And I'm trying to say to them, 
the fact you're asking that question means you want to do something. Now you've got to think through what it might be. What gives me hope is that there is so many people out there who care whether it's about individual issues or the state of the country or the state of politics. That energy's got to go somewhere. And I can see, I do see some people in Parliament that I think, I'm glad they're there. And I see other people coming through local government. I think I'm glad they're there. But I see an awful lot of people coming through campaigns and I think I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing. Alistair Campbell, thank you for joining us in Occupied Islington North. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> thank you. But what can you do? Put podcasts out. It's all I know uh, okay. how to do. <laughs> but What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It is available for pre-order right now. And of course, if you want to help fix politics by other means, you can also support The Bunker on Patreon for daily news and current affairs updates, all delivered early and ad-free. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a little bit more. I'm Andrew Harrison. A new dawn is about to break, is it not? We'll see you next time. The Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.